0: So when you take heavier doctrine like this, we can go to one of two extremes. Number one is we avoid it. We, we stay clear from difficult passages like this. We, we avoid it like avoiding washing dishes, right? At home in the evenings. We just, you just stay away from it. Uh, we avoid it like checking email while on vacation. I will not check my email. I will not go passages like this. And we try to skip. Or instead of avoiding, your stance is that you argue. Like a shark that smells a drop of blood a mile away in the ocean. You you, you smell a debate on Facebook. You you sense that someone is asking questions in church. And so you are there with your cue cards, and you go at them with all the things that you want to say about heavier doctrine like this. And maybe you win the argument, you lose the friendship, though. Our approach to, to difficult doctrine, like predestination, for example, is not to avoid, nor is it to argue, but the right stance is assurance to be assured of these things, to have rock solid confidence rather than living with guilt, fear, regret, condemnation. What I'm wanting of us this morning is that you have assurance in a season that lacks assurance. 2020 is a weird year right? I'm sure there have been churches who last year were thinking about this year, 2020, let's do a sermon series on 2020 vision for the church, right? 2020, and they thought it was humorous. I'm sure churches had plans for this year. Plans for evangelism events and mission trips. Plans for meals and hospitality. Maybe you had family plans. Uh, You were going to do some work on the house. You were going to take the kids on vacation and do a road trip. You had personal plans. You had maybe Social plans. You were going to plan events with relatives and you were going to do things with friends. You were going to start a new hobby. You you were going to do stuff at work. Get new clients and expand the business and try maybe a new job or move to a different career. Complete uncertainty. Your health, completely uncertainty. Your finances, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And so we're living this year with a sense of just confusion, right? Between COVID and racial tension and, and Lebanon and Armenia, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. In a season and a world that lacks assurance, lacks certainty, lacks clarity, lacks guarantees, I want to point your attention to a passage that speaks of assurance, Okay, so this passage provides massive assurance in a season that lacks it. Here we see the condition of our souls, our relationship with God. We see this with complete assurance. We need to do almost like a, a drone fly over this passage. I was playing with a friend's drone a couple weeks ago, just kind of playing with a remote, kind of flying everywhere. Right? You, you get the big picture. Now, now imagine. Let's go above that. Think about a satellite. Um, It was in 1977, NASA sent out the Voyager 1. They wanted to eventually get the Voyager to the edge of the solar system, okay? Uh, And this is flying 40,000 miles an hour. It was the most distant man-made object from Earth. It was first to leave the solar system. Actually, it's still in operation today, 42 years. It's still flying. But after it passed Saturn, they gave the command for Voyager to turn around and take a picture. Not really for scientific purposes, but just out of curiosity. So they gave the instruction, turn around and take a picture of Earth. February 14, 1990, 30 years ago, they took a picture and you can look online, it's called the pale blue dot, right? You you see some stuff and then you see this faint blue dot. I can only imagine now, with, with where we are, with our cameras, if we sent out a satellite, what kind of picture we would get. But, but that's what we're doing with this passage, we're, we're seeing a pale blue dot, we're, we're seeing this from the, the big picture, from eternity past to eternity future, we're seeing this from, from a perspective above, from, from God's point of view. When we look at this passage, there are two things we will not do. We're not looking at this from our point of view. We have a tendency to look at our story, our faith, our conversion. This is what I did and then I chose Christ and I confess my... We tend to see this from our point of view. We're gonna see this from God's point of view. And second, we're gonna see this from a gracious point of view. We're not seeing this about faith. You don't see faith, you don't see conversion, you don't see Christian growth in this passage. It is from God and it's all grace. And in this passage, I'm gonna give you five affirmations. Keep that in mind. Five affirmations. So let me just read it once more. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. First affirmation. He foreknew. What does that mean? Did he kind of foresee who was going to choose him and so he chose accordingly? Did he get a memo that in the future someone is going to pick him and love him and so he said, okay, if they're going to do that I might as well choose them but doesn't that idea allow us to take the credit that we chose and so he chose like at the very basic level who gets the credit from that point of view? It seems that we would no, it, this is more than that. This is not man-centered. This is God-centered. Uh, from the sermon a few weeks ago on First Peter, when when Pastor Sean talked about foreknowledge, he pointed out that the next verse says, "In His great mercy, God was merciful." So what moved Him? He sees sinners. What moves Him is is mercy. He he foreknew. That implies there is something personal. There's something genuine. It is complete. This kind of knowledge is not a school book type of knowledge. It's not about bullet points and emails. This is a personal, affectionate knowing. The, the knowledge here is affectionate and personal. God didn't avoid us, God didn't practice social distancing, right? God doesn't stay away like six feet, God pursues. And we see this in the relationship in the Old Testament between him and Israel. He went into a covenant relationship with them. He sought them personally. He knew them completely. He had deep affection for them. He foreloved them. And so how amazing that here we are, before we can take a step in faith, we hear that a zillion years before that, God was seeking us. God was thinking of us. God was wanting us. He foreknew He predestined. He had names and faces on his mind. He was thinking about us with affection. And we acknowledge that, the God-centeredness of our story, because we give thanks to God for our salvation, right? As you think about your testimony, as you think about how God saved you or someone next to you, what do you do? You give thanks. You give thanks because you acknowledge this is from God. It is gift. It is grace. You, You don't take credit for that. We acknowledge that this is God working because we pray for people, right? We pray for that loved one, that brother, dad, child, friend. We pray that God intervene, that God break through their heart and heart. We're praying because we believe that God, above and beyond all, is in fact working and is able to do something. With confidence in His power and His passion, we pray. Last time on verse 28... Um, we looked at just one verse, and this is what it said, just to review. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together, for those who are called according to His purpose. So, in whose life? Those who love God, but ultimately those who have been called. So so this is about a specific group of people. God chose them. God called them beforehand. God's decision from eternity past Before it was our decision today and our testimony today. We're able to seek Him because He was seeking us. We're able to choose Him because He was already at work in our lives. Did you receive Christ? Yes. Did you confess, believe, repent? Yes. Do you take up your cross and follow? Yes and yes. But above and beyond and before our decision, He was at work. This is a cause of praise. Ephesians 1 starts with doxology, with praise. Blessed, or praise, another translation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here we go. Even as he chose us in him, in the sphere of Christ, in relationship with Christ, Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. Verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Randomly? No. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. With a plan. With a purpose. With passion. With power. From long ago. God was thinking about and loving and pursuing and working so that we would be holy before him so that we would live our lives in worship before him heavy doctrine how do we handle it when we talk about he foreknew he predestined there's no room for apathy there's only room for joy there's no room for apathy. There's only room for joy. There's no room for pride. Ah, oh, he chose me. There's only room for awe. We, we are blown away as we think about this. When we think about these verses, there's no room for self exaltation. There's only room for thanksgiving. Are you with me? When we think about this, there's no room, no need for doubt and fear but only room for security and assurance. As we think about these things, there's no room for passivity, but a pursuit of holiness. As we think about this, there's no room for a sense of hopelessness in ministry and in church life, but assurance that in spite of our weaknesses, and before we can take a step forward, he has been at work from eternity past. God did not save you because he felt lonely. He didn't save you because he felt obligated. He he didn't casually accept. He did not randomly pick. He doesn't just put up with us. He is glad in being gracious and generous in giving us life. He rejoices over us. Remember, there's more joy in heaven over a sinner that repents than one who does not need to repent. So let's never belittle heavenly joy that burst of celebration regarding our salvation this is not a cold and stale and machine like passage this is bursting with joy and as we think about how he has foreknown and predestined where is this going what does the verse say to be conformed to the image of the son he is changing. He is shaping. He is forming you to be like Christ. In college, when I took a few classes on ceramics, I would put the lump of clay and I would kick the wheel. And with water and, and kind of putting pressure with my palm, I'm, I was I would make bowls and vases, but there was a lot that I would need to take out, right? I would need to make you know very thin walls for this to work. So I would take out a lot. I would give it a lot of shape. I would put pressure. If it cracked, I would start all over again. Even when it was dry, I would flip over. I would use tools to scrape away unnecessary parts. There was work to be done on that. He is at work in our lives, shaping us, changing us. And so if you are in Christ, your story will not stop. Your transformation will not fall apart. Your salvation will not wither and dwindle away. Your faith will not ultimately fail, fall, flop, or falter. If you're in Christ now and you're struggling with sin, okay? You're struggling with impatience. This is a group of men here, so maybe you're struggling with lust. Maybe you are struggling with anxiety. Maybe you have outbursts of anger. Maybe you hold grudges. Maybe you are seeking revenge. Maybe you pursue gossip as you're trying to put this sin to death, have this assurance that if you are in Christ, you will be like Christ on that one day. And that is good news. We can learn to treat our wives and our children differently. We can learn to treat our friends differently. We can learn to treat People at church, those who don't we to get along with differently and better when we realize that at the very end of their salvation, they will be like Christ. So think about that person you're not getting along with. Okay? Fast forward their story and think about the future version of them. They are going to be like Christ. And so it's easy to remember their faults. You remember their past. You hold the past against them. It's easy to keep record of wrong when you're dealing with these relationships. And by the way, the closer the people, the harder you get to get along with them, right? There's more tension at home, let's say, than that friend you see once every few years, right? We're in each other's lives, especially in quarantine, right? Home is not very peachy at times. It's hard. Let us hold this hope In our hands. Let us remember that we and they in Christ, this is where we are headed. Why is this a big deal? Why talk about being conformed to the image of Christ? Because he says in verse 29, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so when he says that, he's not saying that Christ is the firstborn, the first created being cults, false religions do that. When he says firstborn, he's not talking about firstborn like my son Ezra, you know? He he gets the clothes and then he passes on his clothes to his brother, right? He gets the first toys and then, and then pie and so on. It's not talking about firstborn in that sense. Firstborn as in status and position, importance, above the rest, supreme, incom- incomparable. Jesus is with us as our elder brother, We have a relationship with him, but he is also high and above all. So here's the order of events, logically, 29 and 30. God foreknew, God predestined, right? That's that's then. Then God comes down, God calls, according to his purpose. Verse 28, the person loves God, god works in all things for the good now we get to the future god conforms the person to christ so that christ will be the firstborn he will have first place god is at work in your life if you're in christ not for your comfort but to be conformed to the image of christ any and every situation every day every season every area of every life God is working so that slowly you become like Christ. This is exhausting. This is hard. But it is certain. There's a lot we don't know. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I think it's Sunday. I think there's church. No idea. There's a lot we don't know Verse 26, 27 talked about it. There's a lot we don't know. We know, verse 28, we know 29 and 30. And we can hold to these promises with assurance. He foreknew, he predestined. Third, he called. He called. This is not an invitation. You get an invitation to a wedding. If you're not busy, you go. You get invited to your friends to watch a movie. You get invited to two birthday parties. You go, you don't go. I don't feel like it. You're an introvert. You want to avoid people. You prefer the quarantine life, right? You don't, You go, you don't go. This is not like that. Um, I, I was a senior in high school and I was one of the four chaplains at our Christian high school. And we planned a school-wide prayer walk. I don't know who came up with the idea. We're gonna walk, walk around our city. We're gonna knock on doors. What can we pray for you? We're gonna walk on the streets and we're gonna pray. I think about 500 students. No one came. It was just the the teacher and the four of us. No one came. And then I would do Bible studies. I'm a senior in high school. Let's do Bible study. So I would announce Thursdays at chapel. Guys, at lunch, I'm going to sit on the grass. Come, let's do Bible study. I would announce every week. I would sit there by myself. At times, people came, but it was the three other chaplains. No one came, right? This is not an invitation like that, that you come, you don't come this invitation is more like Jesus calling out to Lazarus Lazarus come forth someone told me I don't know if it's true that Jesus had to give his name or else if he said come forth everyone would come from the tomb <laughs> the, the, the invitation the calling is life giving it's the, it's the calling Jesus does to dead people you, you don't go to the cemetery and, and, and try to invite they're dead they're dead Jesus comes to the spiritually dead and calls them. He who foreknew, predestined with effectiveness, efficaciously, with power, with passion, he personally calls them. And with that calling comes life. And that calling gives you the desire and the willingness and the surrender and the ability to come. When he calls, it's that kind of power. And he calls through his word. He calls when the gospel's preached. He's calling when people are reading the scriptures during Bible study, when there's teaching. He calls through his word. And so when you're sharing the gospel with someone, it is not on your shoulders to be funny enough, cute enough, entertaining enough, good enough, smart enough, have the right answers to do something in that person's life you proclaim and pray, He comes with power and He saves. So when you are doing ministry in church, in the end, it is not on your shoulders to bring results. When your kids are having questions and doubts, maybe they are turning away from the Lord, it is not on you to fix them and save them. He powerfully calls through His Word by His Spirit. And we can pray with such assurance Uh, There's a a TV show that Ezra and I are watching on, um, I think Disney Plus, Norwegian Ice Truck Rescue. Okay, work with me here. So in in Norway, it's frozen, big trucks, 18-wheelers, right? They're going, they slip, and they fall. Who saves them? It's Bjorn and Tord and their company, okay? I find this fascinating. So lately here and there, we're, we're eating lunch. Kai's asleep, let's watch Norwegian ice trucks. So these guys come with massive, massive trucks, Right? They first like, kind of figure out what they're gonna do. They have beards, they're smoking. Then they put like, pulleys and they tie things to trees and they have chains. Then they show you like, a, a, a cartoon version and they're like, describing like, how they're gonna fix this. And so they're able to pull trucks um, off the icy roads. They save the day. They have, they, they have cushions they put on the Denise trucks, fill it with air, it comes up. The pulleys, it's amazing. I would recommend it. But we saw one episode, they're lifting the truck off the the, the slope and the chain snaps off. The golden chain in this passage does not snap off. The, The chain, the links are all lined up. It does not snap off like the Norwegian ice truck rescue show. So when we see the different parts and the way they're connected, it doesn't say all those predestined he called many some are justified hopefully a number of them will be glorified he doesn't say that he doesn't say all are predestined hopefully some will be glorified though he says all all those who are in the first group will be in the last group if you're if you started the race you will finish the race so all those who are foreknown and predestined all those who are, are those who are called and all those who are called are justified and all those who are justified will be glorified this chain is unstoppable and unbreakable if you zoom out right satellite point of view you will see that the chain is unbreakable and he, if he has started something in your life he will surely finish it fourth point is that he justifies he foreknows he predestined he calls he justifies Justification, I'll explain it this way. This is not about you failing math class and the teacher sends a tutor to help you. And the tutor works with you every week to prepare for the test and the tutor trains you and helps you to improve your grade so that you pass. Justification is more of that smart kid takes your report card a failure, gives you his report card of A+. plus. So that even though you know quite well you still have issues, you are given a clean report card. So this is not about Jesus helping you to pull yourself up and do better. Justification means that he swaps report cards. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus became sin. Jesus had no sin. He became sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. A double exchange takes place. He knew no sin. He was sinless. In him, we are declared clean. We are declared righteous. We are declared acceptable. So he declares us righteous. And that, by the way, is the start of the Christian life. It's not that you try to be good enough. I think I can. I think I can. Right? Like Thomas the engine. And then finally you make it up the hill and you're declared righteous. No, no, no. By faith, you start the race being declared righteous and forgiven in Christ. And where does this go? We started with eternity past. Then we get to the present. He's calling us. He's conforming. And where do we go? He glorified, it says. That's funny, because he describes glorification in the past tense. Why would he say he glorified as if it's done? Because in his book, it's done. He he takes something of the future, he writes about it so much with certainty that he can describe it as past tense. It's done already in his book. He is so sure that you will be glorified on that final day. It is the most daring anticipation of faith in all the New Testament. In the end, your salvation will be complete. You feel like a failure now? Think about this a lot more. This is reality. This is the new narrative that we need to be reminding ourselves. So that we go off of truth, not on feelings. This is how our future is ending. That we will be glorified. We will glorify the Father. We will fully image him we will be restored we will be saved completely we will reflect and shine forth his beauty and goodness and he will receive all the glory in this one verse we have eternity past and eternity future packed in one verse most massive amount of assurance right here wrapped up in these two verses predestination calling glorification it doesn't talk about the Christian life. It doesn't talk about all that you need to do. There's a lot of other passages that talk about that. This is this just about assurance. Uh, when you get married, uh, you give your, your vows, right? You say something, the wife says something. Um, and when we got married, right, Trina made the vow as well. She said, I'm not going to leave you, you know, till death do us part. D- divorce is not an option, Okay. And and knowing that she's not gonna leave me, do you know what that does to me? Do you know how much that frees me to be honest, to be vulnerable? Do you know how much that frees me to be bold and courageous, to be free and joyful? Knowing that she knows me really well with all my crummy sins and weaknesses and issues, and she still says, I'm here. Far more, Jesus will never divorce his bride. God will never forsake his people. He, he's made the vow. He's in a covenant relationship with you. He's not going to let go. A few application points to finish. As we think about this massive assurance in Christ that we have in a season of complete lack of assurance, as we think about what he has done from eternity past to eternity future, as we think about the God-centeredness of our story, the assurance that we have in him, this says a few things for us. Number one, you rest. Brothers, I want you to rest in this. Stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to beat yourself up to be better. Stop trying to do more because there are these expectations or else you're a bad Christian, a failure of a Christian. Stop overwhelming yourself with extra spiritual homework as if you need to do a good job to have a good spiritual GPA to keep your scholarship. You're keeping the scholarship. No matter what you face tomorrow, suffering, struggle, you can rest in this. Number two, rejoice. When we sing, sing with a childlike giddy laughter. Let us sing differently because we are thrilled about this good news. Let us be a people of joy. Armenian men don't have much joy, right? (laughs) Armenian men are serious. Um, We live in Pasadena next to a bakery, right? Armenian men sitting there with masks down, smoking for hours, right? You see, if you've been to Pasadena on Washington, the Armenian men sit in front of Starbucks. They are famous. They just sit there. I would not use the word joy to describe them. Right? Zizvads, maybe. Ziz- Frustrated, <laughs> depressed, angry, discussing politics. We in Christ need to be known for our joy. What if our kids, those around us, the next spiritual generation sees that and, and they notice that it's, it's contagious when, when there is such joy. Rest, rejoice, number three, remain. A few uh, months ago, I finished a year-long kind of leadership training to better understand my calling, my spiritual gifts, and so on. Long story short, the one, one of the aims that I felt God was putting on my heart was to go after this one word, to remain. That as a minister, teach, preach, to encourage and help people to remain. In Christ to remain in marriage to remain in ministry to remain while in suffering and so my encouragement to you is that in light of what Romans 829 30 says remain in your pursuit to be a godly man remain in your pursuit to put that sin to death remain in your role in this church to love to serve to be connected remain there and number four risk rest rejoice remain and risk this kind of assurance gives you the freedom and the heart to take great risks for god what i mean is this you can have courage to embrace the cross you you can have confidence to embrace the christian life because of how he has already embraced you you can have the heart to say no to sin because he's already said yes to you. You can commit to radical obedience because of his radical commitment to you. If we have no assurance, our obedience could be limited, our love could be small, our confidence will be shaky, our courage will be minimal. But if we understand the depth and the extent of his powerful work and the assurance we can have, what does that do to you? To take a risk to take a radical step of obedience, to take a new step of commitment in what God is calling you to do, whatever it is, I just want to end with that note what what do you think is God calling you today? What step to take, what radical risk to take, what maybe very average and normal step of obedience to take in light of the promise that he has He has a strong grip of grace upon your life. I don't know. Maybe you you feel like a failure, as I do sometimes. But I I pray and hope that as you think about God and how He foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, as we think about that golden chain that does not break, as you think about what He has started, what He is doing, what He will do in your life in Christ, I pray that that gives you a new breath of air, uh, some wind to your sails, some encouragement to keep going. Let me pray for you.